the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. With me in studio is my wife, Alexandra. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. We live in a day when everything has to be comfortable. That seems to be the number one demand. Comfortable. Don't speak to me about sin. Don't speak to me about my salvation. Just don't talk to me about any religious issue. We can talk about politics. We can talk about football, baseball. But don't talk to me about my personal life. And don't intimate that something that I have done might not be in line with the will of God. Everything has to be comfortable. Well, Catherine Booth had a very different perspective. 
We're going to be sharing with you today some thoughts from Catherine Booth, who was the co-founder of the Salvation Army, probably one of the most successful movements of God in the history of the Christian church, rescuing sinners, down and out, drug addicts, alcoholics, turning them to righteousness. Are you too righteous to even consider sin in your life? Is your demand that everything be polite and comfortable? Now, granted, when we speak with another, we want to do it in love and mercy and kindness. And yet somewhere we have to be honest with one another, even if that offends. So we're going to share with you her perspective. No grander enthusiasm or heroic self-sacrifice or determined abandonment has ever fired human souls than has been exhibited in the cause of Jesus Christ. We think of, for example, this woman Perpetua, whose story we shared earlier this week, that she would joyously suffer being attacked by wild animals and martyred, knowing she would leave behind an infant child, an unconverted father who was horribly distressed by her death. We look at men like William Tyndale, burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English, we look at missionaries who have gone to faraway islands and countries and have even been cannibalized. Why? What motivates these men and women to sacrifice their own lives, to have children die on the mission field while they're out in the cause of Christ, to have wives or husbands die while they're on the mission field? What motivates these heroes of the faith? Well, it's this love for God and the love for souls of their fellow men and women. On the other hand, Christians of today, generally speaking, want all of their time, strength, and ability, and also the time, strength, and ability of their children to enable them to climb up the ladder of this world's social position, the socio-economic ladder the ladder of success, to get up and up and up. But once they get up there, what will Jesus say? If Christ's teachings mean anything, he will say, Thou fool, and hurl them down to hell. Friends, is it not true? If so, we ought to go down on our faces and weep and have a confession service. First, for those who feel that this truth applies to themselves, and second, for those who, although their own consciences acquit them, know that this truth applies to thousands all around us. Like the prophets of old did, let us humble ourselves for the sins of our people. Let us take their iniquities on our hearts as far as we may, weep over them, confess for them, pray for them, and then set ourselves to try to wake them up to a sense of their responsibility and danger. Further, I charge it on professing Christians today that they have no valor in the fight for truth and for God. 
they do not hold fast to the faith that was once delivered to the saints, but surrender first one point and then another of God's revelation to any skeptical unbeliever who may see fit to attack it. They say Godspeed alike to all professing prophets and Christians and creeds, simply because it's a matter of indifference with them, whether truth or error shall prevail. And often they are most tolerant of false teachers, because it is the false teachers who propound the easiest doctrine, often patronizing the most monstrous contradictions and shameless caricatures of the gospel. There can be no doubt that millions of souls are being sacrificed to the godless, senseless, antinomian gospels of the present day. Antimonian simply means throwing out the moral law of God, saying your actions don't matter. God loves you unconditionally. Once saved, always saved. These so-called gospels have been hacked and hewed worse than any poor, viscerated animal. The very standards and landmarks of God goodness, truth, honesty, chastity, and godliness are broken down, and the people are taught that they have nothing to do, that they have nothing to sacrifice or suffer in order to be saved and get into heaven, and in fact that they can get there as easily by the broad way as by the narrow way. And all who preach the truth as Christ preached it are stigmatized as legalists, as fanatics, or as heretics. A bishop just recently charged me with heresy. The charge of heresy came from him because I had the gall to preach the historic and old Christian gospel in one of the churches under his charge. I preached that a man or a woman, by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, can leave and must leave all known sin and rebellion behind. That he must understand that he is called to live in joyous victory by the power of the blood of Jesus, not by self-help, not by strategies of success, but he must give way utterly and completely to the Holy Spirit's working in his heart and say yes. Now, because of this sinning Christian theology that is totally antichrist and not historic, these modern Christians, perhaps you, lack all enthusiasm for the warfare that we've been called to. Look at their poor, gasping, half-hearted, uncertain profession of personal religion. They condemn anyone who dares to share any definite change that God has wrought in them or any glowing experience of love that God has brought about by his sufficiency the power of Jesus to save. They characterize such testimonies as vainglory, as self-exaltation, 
as pride, whereas they ought to know that one of the main purposes of Christ in establishing a kingdom on the earth was that his servants might be his witnesses, not witnesses merely of his existence, but of his power to save from sin and its consequences in the here and now. Yes, so what you find is that you will share a glowing testimony of how Jesus has made you free from sin, that you no longer sin, that your intention is to never sin again, that you hate sin, that you've declared a war on sin. And then this supposedly Christian person comes back at you and says, you're proud. You think that you don't sin anymore. You don't know your own heart. You're you're sinning right now by telling me that you haven't sinned anymore. And so they deny the power of Jesus to truly save us. And the result is a cold, stiff, dead rituals in the Christian church today. Or look at the empty worldly music and the entertainment that has flooded the church today. Note how people pray, sitting, looking around. I even, I even see pastors standing in the pulpit praying as they look around and smile at various people in their congregation. There's no reverence or decency. They let other people pray for them by proxy, but don't pray themselves. And as you listen to the worldly music of today, mostly sung by a few people standing in front with a, can I be honest, a horrible band where the drums dominate everything. They're doing their praises for them, perhaps with a profane leader. Listen to the preaching. As a rule, it's cold, it's dissertations, it's abstractions, it's platitudes, or... Listen to the pastor as he tells jokes and joins the worldly congregation in casual indifference, drawing his sermon lessons from clips of the latest movies, actually showing them on their large screens. Who would ever imagine that such a pastor and such worshipers were serving Jesus, of whom it is said he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. You've been in these kind of services where you sit there and you know that if you were to say amen during the sermon, everyone would look at you like you were a freak. But as we look at this, consider what happens as soon as the benediction is pronounced. Suddenly there is a great change that occurs among the people. There is now a rush to meet acquaintances, to make dinner plans or lunch plans, shake hands all around, talk about the sports, talk about conversations of Frank's prize at school or honors at college or Harry's promotion or Mary's recent engagement or Lizzie's new baby. All of these topics the heart's interested in. And so the tongue is inspired and the soul comes forth from its lethargy and its deadness. And alas for the children who watch the altered countenances 
and listen to the interested tone and the manner of mother and father during the progress of these congratulations. No wonder if they conclude that this is the reality and what they have just been witnessing in the church is a sham. No wonder they only want to play their video games as the pastor is preaching. They're bored. They're eager to go home to their entertainment, to their real life. Church is not real life for most young people today. No wonder such Christianity cannot hold its own against the forces of the enemy. No cause is so hopeless as one without enthusiasm. People who do not care much are dead in their sin and worldliness. And out of this comes a complete lack of any missionary activity. I know of many people who have sat in the church year after year, never winning one person to Jesus. And if you ask them about it, they will say, Oh, that's not my skill. That's not my talent. I leave that to the preacher. Or they'll say, Jesus hasn't told me to do that. I ask a whole group of men, at maybe 15 men, having dinner together. I got their attention. I asked them the question, have any of you in the last year brought anyone to Jesus? Not one of them had. I said, in the last five years, have any of you brought anyone to Jesus? No. I was afraid to go any further. There was much defensiveness. That's not our job. That's not our gift. That's not our skill. Oh, you mean that when Jesus gave his last orders for the church, the Great Commission, that didn't include you? You got a pass, a special pass to go by saving the souls of other men and women. But if you think about it, if modern church people reason from the value and effect of their religion on their own character and lives, is it any wonder they do not see the importance of bringing that message to the pagans. And from all accounts, it doesn't, doesn't do any more for the heathen abroad than it does for them at home because they bring a false gospel. They bring a gospel of unconditional love, a gospel of eternal security, a gospel of the sinning Christian. I'm saved even though I walk on the Broadway. That sounds pretty horrible to someone who is really suffering the consequences of sin, who is saying, I need to get out of this addiction, or I need to get out of this house where my father is beating me. I, I listened to a testimony of a woman from India who was converted, and her dad was so angry that she became a Christian that he would beat her and then leave her outside the police station and tell the police she was a prostitute. And this went on for years. How was a gospel saying that you can keep sinning and everything's fine going to bring any freedom to somebody like that? Or a man who was a drug addict, became a Christian, was baptized, 
went to a Presbyterian church, and he went to the pastor and asked about the drugs. And the pastor said to him, don't worry about your drugs. You're saved. You're on your way to heaven. And Jesus doesn't much care about your drugs. So when you're ready, you'll give them up. End of conversation. Well, what would it mean if we really decided to follow the book of Acts? What would it mean if apostolic Christian faith became the rule of the day in our churches? Well, first of all, the churches would probably empty out, and that wouldn't be a bad thing, because it would require new conversions, new humility of heart. So let's talk about what the real warfare looks like. Let's talk about the main characteristics of that warfare. First, the soldiers of Christ must be imbued with the spirit of the spiritual war. Now love to the king, that is Jesus, and concern for his interests must be the master passion of the soul. All outward effort, even outward effort springing from a sense of duty, will fail unless love for Jesus and concern for his interests is your primary motive. The hardship and suffering involved in real spiritual warfare are too great for any motive but that of love. It is said that one of the soldiers of Napoleon, when being operated upon for the extraction of a bullet, exclaimed, Cut a little deeper, and you will find my general's name meaning that it was engraven on his heart. Likewise, must the image and glory of Christ be engraven on the heart of every successful soldier of Christ. It must be the all-subduing passion of his life to bring the reign of Jesus Christ over the hearts and souls of men. A little child who has the Spirit will subjugate others to his king, Meanwhile, the most talented and learned and active, without this love, will accomplish very little. If the hearts of the Christians of this generation were inspired with this spirit and set on winning the world for God, we should soon see nations shaken to their center and millions of souls translated into the kingdom. Now what you're saying, Alexandra, as you share this, is that literally... My passion in life, if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, must be the salvation of others. If the main passion of my life is not this, I am not a Christian. And let's be plain, when we speak about the salvation of others, we're not talking about getting an unbeliever to start coming to church. We're not talking about getting someone to recite a sinner's prayer. We're talking about a real change of heart and life, a real turning from sin, giving up sin, devoting oneself to Jesus, to give Jesus the full rule and reign over the heart and life. And that will result in a righteous life and it will result in service for Jesus. So literally, we have to be 
thoroughly, totally committed to God's side of the fight. There can be no neutral ground in this warfare. When the U.S. soldier enlists and is commissioned, he ceases to be his own property, but becomes the property of his country. He must go where he is sent and stand at any post to which he is assigned, even if it be at the cannon's mouth where he knows he will die. He gives up the ways and comforts of civilians and goes forth with his life in his hand in obedience to the will of his commanding officer. If I understand it, that is just what Jesus Christ demands of every one of his soldiers and nothing less. Someone may ask, but we cannot all be ministers and missionaries. Must we not attend to the avocations of this life and work for the bread that perisheth for ourselves and our families? Well, yes, certainly. But the great end in all that we do must be the promotion of the kingdom of God. A man may work in order that he may eat, but he must eat to live, not to himself or for the promotion of his own purposes, but for the king of kings, for the advancement of his interests. And if his heart is really set on this, he'll have no desire to work at his secular calling longer than is absolutely necessary to promote this object. When the necessity amount of work is finished, he will gladly lay aside his implements of husbandry or handicraft for the sword of the Spirit and for the conflict with ignorance, vice, and misery. Instead of spending his evenings in ease and self-indulgence, he will take himself to the street or some other place of resort for the people and will spend what would have been his leisure hours in pressing on them the claims of God and of his truth. There will be no running away, no forsaking of the cross, no shrinking from the hard places of the field, but a determined pushing of the battle to the very gate, even among weariness, even among opposition, and sometimes in the face of defeat. Was it any less a devotion than this, which actuated the martyrs and professing Christians of old? Have I depicted an abandonment greater than that which they understood to be their duty and privilege? If they might have drawn back, then why did they persevere? Many of them through long years of conflict and persecution, culminating in stripes, torture, imprisonment, and death. It is evident that these Christians understood that fidelity to Christ must involve the most perfect self-abandonment, both in life and in death. Christ's soldiers must also understand the tactics of war. In order to do this, we must make it a subject of earnest and prayerful study. To study and pray about how to make the most of our time, of our talents, of our money, of every resource which God has placed at our command for the advancement of his kingdom, we must think 
and plan how to best attack the enemy. Just think of the time, trouble, skill, and money that are expended by great killing armies in planning for strategy and maneuver in order to surprise and overcome their enemies. Some of you may have read in the records of the last German and French war that the German officers were better acquainted with the geography of France than the French themselves were. The Germans knew every road, byway, and field likely to be available for their purposes. Think of the time in trouble that must have been expended and becoming this familiar with a foreign country. And now compare this with the haphazard, rule-of-thumb kind of way in which spiritual warfare is for the most part conducted. Think of the undigested plans, ones that often have to be cancelled partway through or thrown out, the labor and money wasted because of poorly planned out strategies embarked in by professed Christian soldiers who have never perhaps spent a day's anxious thought and prayer over them in their lives. Further, think of the shameful indifference, which cannot be characterized as warfare at all, at the average service in your average American church. It often makes my heart ache as I pass a beautiful, stately, large church facility with a board that has an insignificant announcements that Reverend so-and-so will preach or a gospel address will be delivered or youth meeting 6 p.m. in which it is evident that nothing is contemplated beyond securing the eye and attention of those who already like to go to church. And as I sometimes read the lists of meetings connected with ordinary churches, I say to myself, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, is evidently the belief or creed of those who've come up with this program, not necessarily in regard to the doctrines they preach, but to the old-fashioned methods they use. Is it not time that those who call themselves the children of light should learn, as Jesus exhorted us, to be wise, to be wiser than the children of darkness? And today we have changed what Catherine Booth is describing, and we've become very slick and very sophisticated with internet, television with all of the tools of the day so we can produce four color brochures and colorful announcements with bright neon signs in front of our churches but there seems to be no spiritual depth and there is still a great emphasis I've noticed this on really targeting those who already have an interest in church there is some attempt to reach out to those who have no interest at all, but the fact is that sinners are hostile to God. So but. I grew up in America, and I never once had a Christian in over 20 years of my life, I never once had a Christian come up to me and just talk with me about my soul. I was never invited to an evangelistic meeting. 
because there's such a separation between the worldly people and the Christian people, but it's not a separation over righteousness, and there's not an effort on the part of those who call themselves Christians to aggressively go into the worldly people and actually directly confront them about their soul. And so I didn't even know what the gospel was. I couldn't have told you. If you said to me, Jesus died for me, I'd say, how does Jesus dying 2000 years ago have anything to do with me today? How was that connected at all? Why does the resurrection matter? I never knew any of this stuff. And there are frankly millions of people today who have never heard. I had a student ask me, what is sin? Because we were reading Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. We have millions of young people who have literally never heard one word spoken to them about the salvation of their soul. And are basically illiterate about scripture. One person I spoke with had never heard of Moses. One young person I spoke with had never heard of Peter or James or John. Who are they, he said to me. I said, have you ever heard of the Apostle Paul? No, who is he? I didn't even know there were different books in the Bible or that different Bible translations existed. Now, I believe that the arch enemy, the devil, has retarded the accomplishment of God's purpose, keeping the world largely under his own power and influence. And I believe he has succeeded in doing this as he's always succeeded before by deceiving God's own people. He has always done so. He's always gotten some cartoonish thing of what's real with God and sold it as the real deal. And the nearer he can get it to be like the original, the more successful he is. He has succeeded in deceiving God's people first as to the standard of their own Christian life. And secondly, he has succeeded in deceiving them as to their duties and obligations to the world. He succeeded first in deceiving them as to the standard of their own religious life. He's got the church nearly as a whole today to receive what I call, O oh, wretched man that I am, religion. Romans 7 religion. He's got them to lower the standard with Jesus Christ himself to lower the standard that Jesus Christ himself established in the Bible, a standard not only to be aimed at, but to be attained unto, a standard of victory over sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil, real living, reigning, triumphing Christianity. Now, that statement I just read is straight from Catherine Booth. The Salvation Army, even today, believes that every man is obligated to leave his sin and walk without sin before God. That was John Wesley's message, teaching that Christian perfection was only love. Love was the fulfilling of the law, to walk with no known rebellion against the Most High God. We've shared with you the story of Azusa Street. It was the teaching of Azusa Street. 
that you were to leave all known sin and walk without sin before God. And all of those involved in the founding of Azusa Street in that original prayer group believed that they were walking without sin before God. And that they had received a pure heart as a second work of grace. If you go to Argentina, that great revival that burst forth in the in the 1950s in Argentina that transformed the nation, all of the founders of that believed that they were sanctified wholly unto God, that they were not walking in any known sin. In fact, I'll push it further. There has been no great revival in America wherever there was the belief that Christians could not leave their sin. A requirement for revival is that you believe and practice leaving all sin. Yes, the most simple way to put it, to repent just means to turn from disobedience to God to obedience to God. So when we say you're no longer sinning, that means you are now obeying God. You have left your sin. So Satan knew the secret of the great success of the early disciples. It was their wholehearted consecration and devotion to Jesus Christ. It was their absorbing love for Jesus, their utter rejection of the world. It was their entire absorption in the salvation of their fellow men and the glory of their God. It was an enthusiastic religion that swallowed them up and made them willing to become wanderers and vagabonds on the face of the earth for his sake to dwell even in dens and caves, to be torn asunder, to be persecuted in every form and every kind of violence. It was this degree of devotion and consecration before which Satan saw he had no chance such people as these he knew must ultimately subdue the world. It is not in human nature to stand before that kind of spirit, that amount of love and zeal. And if Christians had only gone on as they had begun, the glorious prophecy would have been fulfilled. The kingdom of this world would have become the kingdom of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. So what did Satan do? He said, well, I'm going to be defeated. I'm going to lose my supremacy as the God of this world. What shall I do? Well, he saw that it would be useless to bring in a gigantic system of error, which everybody would recognize as error. That has never been Satan's way. Instead, his plan has been to get hold of a good man here and there, who could creep in, as the apostle said, unaware, and preach another doctrine, and who would deceive, if it were possible, even the very elect. And this is what Satan did. He accomplished his design. He gradually lowered the standard of Christian life and character, so that now people think, I'm just going to have to be a sinner until I die. And although in every revival, God has raised the standard again to a certain extent, 
We've never gotten it thoroughly back to the simplicity, purity, and devotion that we see in the Acts of the Apostles and in the Epistles. And just in the degree that the standard has approximated that in every age, Satan has gotten somebody to oppose it and to show that this standard was too high for human nature, that it was just beyond us, and that therefore Christians must sit down and just be content to say, Oh, wretched man that I am, until the end of their lives. So Satan has got the church into a condition that makes one sometimes positively ashamed to hear professing Christians talk and ashamed that the world should hear them talk that way. It's not a surprise that thoughtful, intelligent people are driven away from this kind of Christianity. It would have driven me away if I had not known the power of godliness. And in fact, this kind of Christianity has made more unbelievers than all of the infidel and atheistic books written have. Yes, Satan knew that he must get Christians down from the high pinnacle of wholehearted consecration to God. He knew that he had no chance till he tempted them down from that blessed vantage ground. And so he began to spread these false doctrines to counteract what John wrote his epistle for before he died. He saw what was coming, and he sounded down through the ages, quote, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. The Lord revive that doctrine, please, O God. Help us afresh to live up to the standard for which you have called us. The great evil is that dishonored-hearted people, because they feel it condemns them, lower the standard to their own miserable experience. I said when I was young, and I repeat it in my mature years, that if it sent me to hell, I would never pull down the standard of God. Oh, that God's people felt like this. There is the glorious standard put before us. The power is offered, the conditions laid down, and we can attain it if we will. But if we will not, for the sake of the children and for generations yet unborn, do not let us drag it down and try to make it meet our own small circumscribed experience let us keep up the standard of God and admit that we're unwilling to meet it. This is the way to get the world to look at it. Show the world a real, living, self-sacrificing, hard-working, toiling, triumphing religion, and the world will be influenced by it. But anything short of that, they'll turn around and spit upon it. Secondly, Satan has deceived even those who he could not succeed in getting to lower the standard of their own lives. He's deceived them with respect to their duties 
and obligations to the world. Catherine Booth writes, I've been reading of late the New Testament with special reference to the aggressive spirit of Christianity, and it is wonderful what floods of light come upon you when you read the Bible this way, with reference to any particular topic on which you're seeking help. When God sees that you're panting after the light, he pours it in on you. It seems to me that we come infinitely short of any right and rational idea of the aggressive spirit of the New Testament saints. Satan has got Christians to accept what I may call a namby-pamby, kid-glove kind of system of presenting the gospel to people. For example, will they be so kind as to read this tract or book? Or would they not, lo would they not like to hear this popular and eloquent preacher? Won't they be pleased with him? It's this sort of half-frightened, timid way of putting the truth before unconverted people and of talking to them about the salvation of their souls. It seems to me this is utterly antagonistic and repugnant to the spirit of the early saints. Go ye and preach the gospel to every creature. And again, the same idea, unto whom now I send thee. Look at what is implied in these commissions. It seems that no people have yet fathomed the meaning of these two divine commissions. If you sent your servant or your employee to do something for you and said, go and accomplish this piece of business for me, you know what it would involve. You know that he must see certain people and run around the city to certain offices and banks and agents, involving a good deal of trouble and sacrifice. But you have nothing to do with that. He is your servant. He is employed by you to do that business, and you simply commission him to go and do it. What would you think if he went and took an office and sent out a number of invitations to your customers or clients to come and wait on his pleasure, and when they chose to come, just to put your business in front of them. You would say that's ridiculous. If we empty our minds of all of what we've been taught, all of our convictions and our traditions, what would the language of these commissions mean? Go ye to whom? To every creature. Well, where am I to get them? Where they are, every creature. That's the extent of your commission. Seek them out. Run after them wherever you can get them. Every creature, wherever you find a creature that has a soul, there go and preach my gospel to him. If I understand it, that is the meaning and spirit of the commission. And then again to the Apostle Paul. He says, unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God. They are asleep. Go and wake them up. They do not see their danger. If they did, there would be no necessity for you to run after them. They are preoccupied. Open their eyes. 
and turn them round by your desperate earnestness and moral fortitude and, and your moral force. Makes me tremble to think what a great deal one man can do for another or one woman can do for another. To turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. How did Paul understand it? He says, we persuade men. Do not rest content with just putting it before them and giving them gentle invitations and then leaving them alone. He ran after them, poor things, and pulled them out of the fire. Take the bandages off their eyes which Satan has bound round them. Knock and hammer and burn in with the fire of the Holy Ghost your words into their poor, hardened, and darkened hearts until they begin to realize that they're in danger, that there is something amiss. Go after them. If I understand it, that is the spirit of the apostles and of the early Christians, where we read that when they were scattered by persecution, they went everywhere preaching the word. The lay people, the new converts, the babes in Christ. It does not mean always in set discourses and public assemblies, but they went after men and women like ancient Israel, every man after his man to try and win him for Christ. Some people seem to think that the apostles laid the foundations of all the churches, but they're quite mistaken. Churches sprang up where the apostles had never been, for example, the Colossians. The apostles went to visit and organize them after they had sprung up as the result of the work of early laymen and women going everywhere and preaching the word. May the Lord shower upon us in this day the same spirit. We should build churches and chapels. We should invite the people to them. But do you think it is consistent with these two commissions and with many others that we should rest in those activities when three-quarters of the population utterly ignore our invitations and take no notice whatsoever of our buildings and our services? They're not going to come to us. That is a fact. What is to be done? They have souls. You admit that they have a soul and that they must live forever. Well, where are they going? What is to be done? Jesus Christ says, go after them. When all the civil methods have failed, when the genteel invitations have failed, when one man says that he's married a wife, and another that he's brought a yoke of oxen, and another that he has bought a piece of land, then does the master of the feast say, the ungrateful wretches leave them alone? No. He says, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. I will have guests, and if you can't get them in by civil measures, use military measures. Go and compel them to come in. It seems to me that we need more of this determined, aggressive spirit. Those of you who are right with God this afternoon, you need more of this spirit to thrust the truth upon the attention of your fellow men. Again, to be clear, we're not speaking about getting unsaved people to just go to the church building, to join a certain denomination, to believe your particular Christian creed. 
we're talking about getting sinners to turn to righteousness, to give themselves totally to Jesus Christ, to have a changed heart and life without sin, and to spend the rest of their lives serving Jesus. Now we're almost out of time for this broadcast. But I've been told you must be very careful and you must not offend. You must not thrust religion down people's throats. And Catherine Booth says, then I say you will never get it down. What? Am I to wait till an unconverted godless man wants to be saved before I try to save him? He will never want to be saved till the death rattle is in his throat. It's time we got serious about this. I've pastored too many years in churches where not one person had ever won anyone to Jesus. And it was all about spiritual growth. Well, you're not growing spiritually if you're not witnessing for Jesus Christ. That's where the growth comes from. So pray about what we've shared with you today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. With me is Alexandra, my wife. We're serious about Jesus. We want revival in Washington, D.C. We want sin to be put away. We want men and women to open their hearts and their pocketbooks and invest in the kingdom of God. We'd love to hear from you. Our address is the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. And visit our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. You can listen to this message again, and you can send us a message or a donation online. God bless you. We love you. We want you for Jesus and for the kingdom of God. We'll talk to you soon. This is WAV. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.